with the increasing frequency of cyber attacks in the media, I think it's worth taking a few minutes to try to understand how exactly attribution is done. What is attribution in the cyber context, and why do we even do it? How is it different than its offline equivalent in criminal investigations? Where does data and forensic evidence come from? And who, be it the government or private companies, is actually involved in the process? I'm Adrian Lilly, and this is Pod Academy. Today, I'm talking to Ben Buchanan. Good to be with you, Adrian. So I'm Ben Buchanan. I'm a PhD candidate at King's College London. He's recently published a paper with Thomas Ridd in the Journal of Strategic Studies called Attributing Cyber Attacks. Their paper attempts to get to the essence of attribution in cybercrime and sets up a model that they hope can help streamline the process. You can find out more about accessing the paper over at the Pod Academy website. Before we begin, though, there's a number of major cyber attacks that have popped up in the media in the last couple of years. So just in case you're like me and may need a refresher, let's start with a few of those stories. Let's begin back in 2010 with the discovery of Stuxnet. Stuxnet was a piece of malware or malicious software that is generally cited as being one of the most, if not the most, sophisticated computer virus to date. And while no one has officially taken credit for it, best guesses are that it's a product of the U.S. and Israeli governments. The software was specifically designed to target a uranium enrichment facility in Iran by subtly changing how some of the mechanical structures in the facility operated, specifically the spinning speed of a number of centrifuges. Stuxnet was an attempt to sabotage the Iranian nuclear program. It's significant for a couple of reasons, but the one that I want to emphasize here is the complexity and sophistication of the operation. Here's Ben talking about Stuxnet. Okay, now you brought up the centrifuges in Iran, so I'm assuming you're talking about Stuxnet. I was talking about Stuxnet, yeah. Okay, I wonder if you could go ahead and just sort of describe what happened there. Sure, so Stuxnet was a long uh, cyber operation against Iranian centrifuges that, um, by some reports, involved building a replica replica or a model of the Iranian nuclear facility and testing the code against this model before it was deployed against Iran. That's an operation that probably cost hundreds of millions of dollars or, or significant amount of money when you count all the physical expenses for, for building that facility, that, that test facility, um, and employing the right engineers to, to make that work. Um, it's believed to be have been conducted by the United States, likely working in partnership with Israel. And it had the effect of manipulating the centrifuges in certain reasonably subtle ways over a period of years to slow down or attempt to slow down the Iranian nuclear program. Who discovered it and who did it? Um, so the technical side of the operation was discovered by security researchers um, who were alerted when computer in Iran kept restarting for unknown reasons. These researchers looked into the code and they discovered that it was what looked like a cyber weapon against the Iranian nuclear facility. Um, people immediately assumed or guessed that it was the United States or Israel, but there's no concrete proof for quite a while. And then in that case, what is today probably the most definitive or credible attribution of the Stuxnet attack came from a reporter, came from David Sanger at the New York Times, who, um, working the inside the beltway sources for a long period of time, got the story that it was, in fact, likely a United States and Israeli operation. Um, and then further reporting seems to indicate that's the case. There's no indications otherwise, but this is a case where the technical indicators discovered by researchers were not enough to definitively point the finger at a government. Um, more reporting was necessary, traditional reporting. Now, let's jump forward a few years to 2014. In an unprecedented move, the United States Department of Justice indicted five Chinese People's Liberation Army officers 
on charges relating to theft and cybercrime. This is the first time the U.S. government has ever indicted foreign officials on charges related to cyber attacks. The attribution, however, came first to the public's attention in the former report known as Advanced Persistent Threat 1, or the APT-1 report. This was released by a private company. Almost a year later, the U.S. Department of Justice released its own report on this PLA unit. Here, the private sector and the government are both looking at similar data and drawing similar conclusions. Here's Ben talking about the APT-1 report. The APT-1 report was put out um, in 2013 by a company called Mandiant, which is one of the leading companies in this space. And it identified this group likely operating in China that Mandiant claimed was tied to the PLA that had, been, that had conducted a wide series of operations. And in this case, all indications are, retrospectively, the government agreed with most of the data in this report, and it lined up with what they saw internally. Um, Mandian's report was splashed all over the New York Times. The government didn't really weigh in at the time, one way or the other, about whether the report was right. But all indications are they were pretty much on the same page. So that's one end of the spectrum, where the private sector and public sector are aligned. One of the reasons it's fair to say the government's on the same page as Mandian in that report is the Department of Justice indicted five people from the People's Liberation Army in China that appear to be from the same group as the Mandian report. And this is the first time that's happened, right? So that, that was the first time the Department of Justice indicted other military officers from another government for a cyber operation or in response to a cyber operation. The final cyber attack story we should mention actually happened shortly after the release of this paper. It's an extremely relevant story, and it manages to bring together a few important points, including the complex relationship between the private sector and the government, the elusive nature of attribution, and the media frenzy that it can often cause. You may remember it as the Sony hacks. In late 2014, attackers took private emails and other sensitive data from the computers at Sony Pictures and published it online. The attacks were attributed to North Korea, but met considerable controversy. Here's a little bit on how that happened and what exactly caused the controversy. So what was the controversy there? How did that? Well, it's a case of um, the government released some, the government made a, a claim that this was, in fact, um, North Korea. Uh, well, actually, let's, let's, let's back up to the very beginning. So let's tell the story of the Sony hacks very briefly. But the Sony hack was, Sony was producing a movie, um, The Interview, which made fun of the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, and... As this movie was nearing release, there was a incident in the Sony computer networks in which um, a lot of data was stolen and key servers and computers were attacked. So it was a combination of an attack actually doing damage to computers uh, by a cyber operation and espionage, taking or exfiltration, exfiltration, taking valuable data out of the network. And um, the data in question here is personal emails and, and things of that sort from the Sony networks of Sony executives. And these emails were dumped online. It's an embarrassment to some Sony executives. And the hackers did not identify themselves as part of a nation state, but said, you know, don't show this movie, or they posted threatening messages online. And Sony had to figure out how to respond. They had to figure out who did it. Sony, since it was a very serious case, got the FBI involved. And the FBI claimed reasonably early on in the process that it was North Korea. And it was tied to the political anxiety or geopolitical anxiety around the movie, The Interview. They released some data, but not a great amount of data very early on. Other private security companies looked at different data or had their own data and made contrasting claims. Um, And there were a number of people who weren't necessarily making contrasting claims, but who were saying, yes, this may well be North Korea, 
but you, FBI, you government, have not released enough technical data, down the weeds technical data, to prove that it is in fact North Korea. Why should we believe you? And this is a case where the private sector actually has the appetite and the ability in cybersecurity to consume and analyze the technical nuts and bolts data, which may not be the case in other kinds of intelligence. So they were saying, until you release that data, we're not going to believe you. And in response, eventually, the government released a little bit more data. Okay, now that we have kind of an idea of some of the big media stories that have happened around cyber attacks in the last few years, let's go ahead and turn to a more detailed discussion about the paper and more specific elements of attribution. I'd like to start very, very simply and just ask, what is attribution? It's figuring out who is responsible for a certain activity in cyberspace. Attribution is often thought of as a problem. Uh, So if we're a defender to a network and we're attacked, the attribution problem is figuring out who attacked us. And obviously this is important for a number of reasons. This is important potentially for legal reasons, if we want to seek some legal remedy. This is important for statecraft reasons, if it's a nation state and we want to conduct diplomacy or military operations in response. Um, And this is important for forward-looking reasons, because we want to figure out who got in, how they got in, in order to improve our network in the future. You also talk a little bit in your paper, you begin by discussing offline examples of attribution, such as the Malaysian airline flight in Ukraine that crashed in 2013, chemical weapons in Syria. Exactly. And and one of the points we make in the paper is that attribution as a general concept isn't new. So we hear about it a lot when it comes to cybersecurity because it's different. But it's important to remember that in the scheme of history, in the scheme of law, attribution is a problem that's been with us for a long time. Um, So the United States has a legal system that resolves or attempts to resolve attribution. And um, in international relations, we can point to examples where attribution, at least initially, and sometimes more than initially, has been in question for quite a while. So the ones you mentioned about the Malaysian airline flight is, is, is a good example. Um, the use of chemical weapons in Syria is a good example. Um, the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand that started World War One is another example. In each of these cases, the attribution, at least initially, and sometimes more than that, was up for debate uh, and contested by parties involved or potentially involved. And these are all political tools as well. Right. In that case, um, attribution is of great political importance. And that's certainly the case in cybersecurity as well. So in cybersecurity, an incident may involve a theft of politically sensitive data, such as um, internal communications to a state, wiretapping a leader, uh, or it may involve an attack on a significant institution, such as centrifuges in Iran. And in those cases, getting the political question of attribution right is immensely important because Um, A state that gets it wrong runs the risk of attacking the wrong state or responding in the wrong way. So there seems to be an analogy that's often made between cyber attribution and more traditional criminal investigations. Where do you think this analogy proves to be useful and where does it begin to diverge? Well, it's, it's appropriate insofar as it's an investigation. And one side is tasked with finding forensic data that's incriminating or indicative and marshalling that data in the means of making a case and coming to a conclusion and then acting on that conclusion. And a criminal process, um, there's reasonably clear standards that have to be followed in that process. So when the FBI or police investigates a crime, there's standards for evidence, there's standards for evidence collection, there's standards for evidence preservation, and this is reasonably um, consistent. That's something that diverges. So in cybersecurity, when the investigator is not trying to make a criminal legal case, there's a lot more freedom to investigate in different ways. So we don't have to, in cybersecurity, investigate according to strict chain of custody evidence procedures and evidence collection procedures because 
it probably won't end up in court anyway in some cases. So we might be more freeform. We can draw conclusions that um, may ha- meet a standard somewhat less than beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's very important to consider as well, which is the tagline that we use in the paper is attribution is what states make of it. So states have the freedom to decide how they are doing attribution and what standard is good enough for them. Broadly speaking, police don't have that freedom. They have to meet, they have to have follow certain standards if they want to win in court, and um, they do so. But investigators for states can decide at what point they want to stop, at what point they want to consider something clear, and at, at what point they want to decide the attribution process is done. And that, that's a key difference. What about in the private sector? Same thing applies, except perhaps even more so, because they're very rarely taking significant action in response. So the private sector is not going to launch an attack in response to an attribution conclusion. So they can decide at what point do we have enough data to go public with this? At what point do we have enough data to brief our client about this? Um, and how do we collect that data? Your paper is a, is a lot more about governmental attribution. But in the case of a private company, do they care who's doing it? Why is attribution even an issue within within the private sector? That's a great question. And it's one of the things that we asked a lot. So just as a backstory, in, order, in doing this research, we met with people from governments in the United States and the United Kingdom, the intelligence community, and also leading private sector companies that do incident response. And we said to them, why do your average, why is your average private company that's hacked, why do they care about who, who did it? Don't they just want to fix the problem and move on? And they said that, yeah, to some degree that's the case. Attribution is not the most important thing, but to some degree it's instinct for these companies, many of whom have not had the experience of being hacked before, to want to know immediately, like, who did it? Why are they doing this? Um, and you can imagine you're, you know, you're briefing a non-technical group of people, so you're briefing a chief executive officer, and you're saying, well, I'm sorry, sir, but you know, this very bad thing has happened to your computer networks. Your emails are online, or um, your computers aren't working. This is affecting your business. A natural question for that person to ask is, well, who did it, and, and why did they do it, and what can you tell me about them? And I want to know right away. And for that reason alone, attribution is an important question. Uh, attribution can also be an important question because these operations can affect business themselves. So if sensitive data has been leaked or has been uh, exfiltrated, the company involved probably wants to know where that data is. And it might mean something different if that data is in the hands of one of their competitors or if that data is in the hands of some third party that doesn't really affect them. Okay. So in that, for that reason, there's some, some cause for them to know where their data is and what, what happened. Now, where does the data come from? So a good portion of the data that we're talking about actually comes from the networks and the computers of the hacked party. One of the key things that we often find on the on hacked computers is software that's been used by the attacker. So they've broken in, they've made entry into our network, and they've loaded some software, which is essentially a tool that they'll use to carry out the other stages of their operation. We can look at that tool, and we can see some information about it and use that as sources for our investigation. So a lot of it comes from information that the security companies that come in and do the forensic, they gather that information because they have access to the computers. Right. So that information isn't then necessarily amongst all the security companies or amongst... Oh, no, not at all. So it depends on, um, it depends on the security companies that have been empowered to investigate a particular case. Now, sometimes cyber operations are not narrowly targeted, so they'll hit a number of... Uh, places at once, and security companies may already have relationships with one or many of those places, and different companies may have relationships with one or many of those places. So if an attack hits 100,000 targets, 
then it's reasonable to expect that a lot of security companies will have some visibility into that attack. Okay. And that's when you can get some degree of disagreement, where one company says our data shows this, another company says our data shows that. And that, you know, that's to be expected, I think, in the investigations world. What exactly is the relationship between the private information security companies that are producing a lot of reports on this and obviously have a lot of the data for this because the malware is coming through their system versus, say, the government, who's also doing any attribution? So you've put your finger on a really important point, which is that in cybersecurity, there's far more um, private sector involvement than there is in other forms of intelligence. So think back to the examples I mentioned before about the Malaysian airplane or use of chemical weapons in Syria. In those cases, though attribution was debated by some parties, there's very little private sector knowledge of the case. That's not what's going on in cybersecurity. So in cybersecurity, um, there are genuine experts in the private sector who have technical data and can weigh in. Now, there are also people in the private sector who don't have technical data and shouldn't be weighing in, but do it anyway. But there are genuine experts who do weigh in. And those companies, and these companies like Mandiant, FireEye, CrowdStrike, produce reports uh, based on data that's available to them. And these reports were a major source of research or a major source of information for our research and can sometimes be quite good. Um, so I, it changes the dynamic with the government because the government can make a, claim, make a claim. And then the private sector, in this case, in cybersecurity, actually has the information sometimes to say, no, that claim is false or that doesn't jive with what we're seeing or our indicators show that you've neglected to point out this other fact. And that's, that is a true sea change, I think, in how attribution is done in regards to cybersecurity as compared to previous forms of attribution. So how is attribution done in cybersecurity? So um, let's imagine we're part of an organization. Our organization has been hacked, and we've learned about being hacked. And as an organization, what we will do is um, empower an incident response team to figure out what happened. And that could mean... We have a team internally that we've hired that's ready to go. That's less likely in this era of budgets. So more likely we'll hire an external company, Mandiant, FireEye, one of, one of these companies that's well-versed in the field, and they will come in and investigate. So what they will do is they'll look at our computers for forensic evidence, and they will look for different kinds of evidence, and that evidence will inform the investigation. It may be worth just taking a step back to think about what kind of data is involved in these kind of forensic operations. Um, so when we talk about forensics in computers, and particularly in incident response, there's a number of different factors at play. The The paper goes through quite a few of them. Um, but just to give a couple examples, a very commonly cited one is language. So what language do the attackers use in any communications with the target? Um, are there any flaws, weaknesses, idiosyncrasies in that language? And then what language did they use when they actually programmed their code? So you can see the keyboard configuration that they used in some cases. It's also very easy to fake. A second forensic indicator that comes up a lot is time zones. So during what hours of the day did the attackers commonly work? Were they working when it was midday in California, or were they working when it was midday in Russia or China or Israel? So in general, we can establish a pattern of life um, related to timing and time zones, we can learn a little bit more potentially about their habits and potentially about who they are and where they're located. It's also worth recognizing that at a certain point the time zone indicator drops out of the equation because sophisticated operations will be 24-7. In addition to language and time zones, um, another interesting thing is infrastructure. And when we say infrastructure, we mean the computers that were used to 
conduct the operation. So very frequently, an operator might target a computer as an intermediary step and then use that computer to target another computer. Very frequently, they will reuse those intermediary computers across operations. So we can tie the intermediary computer to an operator in one case. If that intermediary computer, that hop point or launch point, shows up in another operation, we have a good indicator that it was uh, it's the same person. Essentially, it's a, a method of operations. And if we can show some consistency in method of operations, and particularly what's used to carry out the operation, it, it gives us a great deal of data about who might be behind it. So what sort of indicators allow a researcher to point the finger at a government versus an organization versus an individual? Well, making making the making a link to a government is actually is actually quite difficult, um, and this is something that we talked about in the paper a fair amount. But um, sometimes it's it's possible to identify where the keyboard that launched the attack is, and um, broadly speaking, some characteristics about the person who who launched it, so language indicators or something like that. But making the link to the government is actually quite quite difficult. Some of the ways in which it's done is people look at what else is on the computer that launched the attack. So um, there's cases uh, in which People's Liberation Army photos were found on the computer that launched the attack of the person in uniform or on his Instagram page or Flickr page. And that's sometimes called persona research. So figuring out who the person is who is involved in launching the operation and then figuring out what can be learned about that person. And are they a military officer? Are they um, an intelligence official? It's worth remembering, of course, that those kinds of people don't only work for the government. So just because someone is an, a military official doesn't mean that they're necessarily conducting an operation on behalf of the military. If you could just go ahead and, and talk more about the model that you guys set up. Right. So we uh, we created a model called the Q model, which stands for a number of things. Could be question, could be uh, quartermaster, which is actually the root of the word cyber steering, or it could be James Bond, depending on your preference. And the Q model It's a visual model, so it's quite difficult to describe in an audio context. But the Q model basically has three layers, a technical layer, an operational layer, and a strategic layer. And what it seeks to do, among other things, is um, clarify and exhibit and surface the questions that happen at each layer. So technical people might be the the ground-level analysts who are collecting and working the forensic data. And operational people might be political analysts who are taking that, taking the conclusions of the technical team, and marrying it with the non-technical intelligence they have or with the regional expertise they have. And then strategic people are the ones who ultimately have to reach a conclusion, test out competing hypotheses generated by the operational team, and decide on a response. And one of the ways in which they do that is they probe the analysis and they, analysis and they stress test the analysis, and they try to make sure the rest of the people working in the model have done their job well. And at each of those three levels, technical, operational, and strategic, we provide some of the questions and some of the considerations that are in play. And then if you can imagine it, that's that's the circular part of the queue, and then the hook at the queue at the end is the communication part. So that's when it break, we break out of that cycle, and we, as a team, present our findings either internally to a government uh, or a private sector organization or externally to the public. And that's the last part of the model. So the last thing I really wanted to talk about was how it's discussed to the public, the general public. Sure. So we spent a, a significant amount of paper on the challenge of communication, which is the entire third part of our paper. Um, the the North Korea case, which came out after we wrote all of this, demonstrated, I think, a lot of the importance of communication. And there's two kinds of communication. There's internal communication within the government. So we're the head of a technical agency or a technical team, and we are briefing a non-technical person within the government about um, what happened. 
and this communication to the public. Uh, we have reached an internal conclusion, and now we are, for whatever reason, presenting that to the public. And on the first side, um, one of the things that's important is metaphors are good, and it's important to, to understand what's going on um, and present it in a way that's accessible. But we try to establish a common vocabulary, which is not too technical, but which makes sense to both technical people and non-technical people um, for that kind of communication. So surfacing the indicators and surfacing ways of presenting the data that makes sense to everyone involved, everyone at that table, technical and non-technical alike. So that's why we tried to provide a fair amount of explanation in a paper of what actually is going on um, and try to couch it in terms that people can get. So people get, for example, why time zones and language are important. And if that the code was programmed um, by someone who's Chinese speaking, it's an indicator of something. Indicators like that are presented in uh, ways that, that we hope non-technical and technical people can get. And certainly I think that's true in the government as well. We didn't invent that. Um, and then when it comes to referring to when communicating to the public, I think you see a lot of the same thing, except that maybe less, less specific. So beyond time zone and language, they're a little bit reluctant to share some technical data and some information around, you know, around that data. Um, but you do hear in that case, I think, particularly government people using, um, metaphors or using analogies to try to explain what happened, um. And those analogies are varying quality because cyber and what happens in cyber operations is is quite different in some cases from what happens elsewhere. But certainly you see allusions to espionage, to warfare, to attack. Um, and those have some value in making this real for people who aren't technically inclined. Are there any particularly interesting stories that you think people would want to research if they were just interested in looking at some of the major cases? Um, so, I mean, the Department of Justice in, in investigation or indictment is a is is one that for has, the PLA officers. for the PLA officers, yeah, uh, has gotten a lot of play. Now, that's legalese, so maybe that's not the one to start with if you're not a lawyer. Um, the corresponding mandate report on that, that's the APT one report, is is maybe more readable and more interesting. And this is from 2013. That's from 2013. That's right. Um, and we have a number. We uh, we tried to provide an example for every single paragraph in our report that discusses like an attribution indicator or a forensic type of forensic data. So we have a, we have a re- example for each one of those um, indicators. So whatever your particular interest is, if you're interested in time zones, there's examples of cases in which time zones feature prominently. If you're interested in language analysis, we have reports that feature that. And that's all, it's all footnoted in the, in the paper because we think it's important for our paper, though it tries to provide some answers and some clarity, to be a jumping off point because this is a, this is a pretty broad world of questions, uh, very interesting questions that can be asked regarding attribution. And we wanted to provide pathways into asking those questions and getting um, access to the, the pretty solid data that's out there. That was... Ben Buchanan talking about a paper that he recently published with Thomas Ridd on attributing cyber attacks. If you'd like to know a little bit more on how to access that paper or find out more about attribution and cybercrime, you can jump over to the Pod Academy website. I'm Adrian Lilly. Thanks for listening.